The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, and our francophone colleague, editor of Projet Afrique Chine, Jeronima, joining us from Mauritius. A very good afternoon to you, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, today I am so excited about this show. I have been waiting to do this show for months now. Months, I tell you, because it's our first opportunity to introduce our newest colleagues at the China Global South Project to join us on the show. We have a bunch of new folks on our team, but these two are the first time on the show. So joining us from East Africa, our new China editor, Han Zhen. A very good afternoon to you, Han Zhen. Hi, Eric. Good afternoon. It is great to have you on the show. And we're also joined from Nairobi from our new China-Africa climate editor, Injina Hakina. Injenga, how are you today? Welcome to the show. Hey, hello, Eric. I am good. It's great to have you guys on the show. Let's, before we get started, maybe we can do a little introduction just about yourselves, just because we've been teasing this over the past few months that we've got some new staff joining. Now you guys are with us. Let's start with you, Han Zhen. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to join us. Okay, thank you, Eric. Hi, guys, this is Han Zhen. Uh, I'm speaking in East Africa, which I have been staying here for almost one year now. So it's actually been five years since the first time I stepped into our Africa continent. But this year is also very interesting to see, you know, the China leading Belt and Road initiatives for its 10th years. So I've been here in the fifth countries uh, in Africa. So for me, Africa is always my passion. I have seen a lot of possibilities, uh, potentials, uh, hopes here. But also, as you all know, there is a lot of Chinese engagement from different uh, stakeholders, including governments private companies, also some individuals. So personally, I'm a journalism graduate. So I always see, you know, as an observer for everyone that I have encountered with here in Africa. So it's my great pleasure to join the team. And I would like to share more in the future about what happening here and from more Chinese perspective. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you on the team. And Han Zhen's been writing for us already these past two weeks in our daily newsletter that goes out to subscribers, doing a lot of translations and a lot of analysis. One of the things that she does is she combs through all of the WeChat groups and Weibo posts and Chinese social media, also looking at what the academic discussions are going on in China. Because one of the things that happens in the Chinese discourse is that it's radically different in tone and style than what we hear in English. And so it's really important for us to be able to bring those conversations that are happening in the Chinese universe to everybody. And so we're thrilled that she will also be joining us on the show. And Jenga, let's go to you. You've been doing journalism, particularly climate journalism, for quite some time in Nairobi. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. All right. I am a multimedia journalist and trainer, and I have over 10 years experience in this. I have been reporting and producing reports for the publications that I've worked with. 
My background is radio. I have been doing this for since I began. So straight from college, I joined the BBC doing some um, shows for the youth in uh, health. And so after that, I got into climate change. And that is what I have been doing up to now. I have managed to do editorial processes and writer improvement because it has gotten to a point where we need to keep educating our journalists, especially the ones who are joining. And so I have managed to do that within the organizations that I've worked with. And then I have covered sub-Saharan Africa largely in business. It is very difficult to communicate climate change stories in Africa because probably of the technicality and uh, the changing dynamics and so it has been a challenge and fusing this into what I ended up with in business has been a challenge. However, coming to CGSP has been an opening for me. I get to see Africa from a different perspective as well and thus I can communicate much better and having to focus on everything, you know, Chinese, something that I've not done before is a really interesting uh, approach. And I'm getting into this, focusing on renewable energy, climate mitigation, and agriculture, and also other practices that are happening in terms of addressing the challenges that uh, African countries are facing, and also having to hear and uh, give out the voices that people are uh, have in terms of what their issues are, in terms of the challenges they are experiencing, and then again, getting to tell the story from Africa which also gives it a little bit more perspective than it would have been elsewhere. And if you want to see the great work that Njinga is doing in both English and in French, just go to either the English or the French homepages and you'll see a section about two-thirds down the page, China, Africa, climate news. So Njinga is covering all of the deals on solar, on hydro, on all the new energy initiatives, even touching on some mining initiatives and power. And we're going to talk today about steel and energy, that a story that he's been reporting on. Let's start first, though, with Hanzhen. Uh, Hanzhen, this week we've been focusing on a couple of posts by a WeChat commentator by the name of Nia Xiaorui. And he has a rather popular WeChat page. He's based in Africa. I don't really know where in Africa he's based, but he really speaks from an African point of view that he's at least here. And he has a popular page called Nye Talking About Things. And then he wrote an article, he wrote two that we're going to focus on today. And the first one is, in Africa, the Chinese are scapegoats. And it's a fascinating insight into how a certain segment of the Chinese population in Africa sees their place in these societies and also their role vis-a-vis even Chinese as well. Let's start with kind of an overview of Nye and what he was saying. And again, getting your take as somebody who's in the Chinese community and what you thought uh, of his perspective. Okay, great. Thank you, Eric. So for Nye Shaorei, so he's a very interesting person. I've been following him for a few years. So he's starting writing articles on WeChat accounts, mainly began on the COVID era, which in 2020, he's still working in Africa, mainly in Kenya and Tanzania. He started to write, you know, uh, during the COVID time, you know, the starting time in China, people are quite focused on a lot of things happening online and writing their comments. So he's been a very sharp person commenting on what happened in Africa, the China, Africa's engagement, mainly from, you know, the individual's level. And also he shares his opinions on Chinese policies 
in his perspective. So we find him very interesting because he representing some people. They might not be professional on policies or investments or those things, but they still they have their own observations and opinions. At the same time, they are somehow a major stakeholders or players in Africa now. Because we see from some data, like the private Chinese private business, both individuals and companies, actually they have been covered major percentage of the Chinese who are working or living in Africa now. So for his two articles, actually in the recent one or two weeks, we have seen his posts. Uh, one is about uh, what Eric have mentioned, like China Chinese as being the scapegoats in Africa. So he been you know stay in East Africa for over ten years. So he has a lot of experience. Like the police stopped him and get he get like question or find well. He say maybe the Europeans or Americans didn't uh, face the same situation. So personally, he has a lot of experience regarding this. So he shared, and also his opinions about, you know, because Chinese they have a lot of business operating in Africa. There's higher risks that is got a spotted by the local stakeholders, by the government, the police. So facing all this risk,、um, it exists already. So in what way that Chinese people can solve those problems? But the whole article, I think, is mainly you know he take himself or those group of Chinese people as some you know a group of people that's on the bottom of the foreigners in Africa. Yeah, he said that they didn't get any respect. And let me just read you a quote from what he said. He said, "In Africa, you hardly hear about any Europeans or Americans becoming defendants that is being sued or stopped by the police or attacked by the law, or even not the case for Indians and Pakistanis. It has become a widely held belief in African society that these individuals should not be trifled with, whereas Chinese people are seen." As easy targets, and he goes on to talk a lot about the frustrations of again being targeted by the government, being targeted by people, and even the geopolitics. Even when he goes home to China, he says people, you know, don't respect the fact that he's in Africa compared to those Chinese who are in Europe or the West. Now, one of the articles really focused a lot on the China Square Mall incident that happened earlier this year in February and March, and. I want to set this up, and then we're going to come back to Han Zhen to kind of explain what Nie was talking about. But I think it needs some context and some explanation because the issues in the China Square Mall incident in Kenya are playing out in many different African countries across the continent. And we've talked about this in Ghana and South Africa, but also the questions about Chinese labor even in Ethiopia as well. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of background. On the China Square Mall, and that will then set up our conversation nicely about Nia with Han Zhen. So, this started in late February when the trade minister in Kenya, Moses Kuria, he targeted this one mall. And let me just give you a report now from the government-run Kenya Broadcasting Corporation, their prime news program that sets up the story. They came out in large numbers. <laughs> 
Hundreds of household and electronic goods dealers from Nyamakima, Kamukunji, Kirinyaga and River Road took to the streets to demonstrate against what they termed as an intrusion of foreign traders in the market. Carrying placards and blowing whistles, the protesters claim the Chinese traders had taken over the retail market, a move that has slashed their profits. Those who spoke to KBC are petitioning the government to only allow Chinese businessmen to be involved in manufacturing. On the claim that the prices are exorbitant, the traders instead blamed the government over the high loan rates. Their appeal to speak to the deputy president was however not granted. The demonstrations come in a wake of uproar over the establishment of China Square, a retail mall merchandise along Thika Road. So the issue is that Chinese goods are undercutting local producers, local merchants in the electronics business and other sectors can't compete, mobilized huge protests on the streets of Nairobi. Uh, Kobus, you remember even this became an issue in Washington when the top commander for AFRICOM, General Michael Langley, mistakenly, erroneously, whether intentionally or not, referenced those protests as somehow indicating they were against China and loans, when in fact these were against China Mall, these imported goods they said they can't compete. Now, let's listen to what Korea, the trade minister, said on this, because in many ways he has been identified as the organizer or at least the force behind these protests. He was then called into parliament after the China Square Mall closed, okay, and this is very important because they came under protest and finally the owner of China Square Mall said, that's it, forget it, I'm out of here. And he shut the doors on this very popular mall. We have not forced anybody to close their business, but we deserve the right to give our opinion on something. And my opinion is that we should be encouraging people to set up factories here, to sell goods here, because what they are selling here, it is not rocket science. We can do it here. That position is not changing, and I stand by it. We should not be importing phone covers and all those things which you can make here. That is why I'm asking for Parliament again and again to support our proposed legislation to really discourage dumping and people who want to use Kenya as a, as a, as a, as a, as a dumping ground. Chair, by yourself, you said that there used to be those days when industrial area you could find people walking, uh, riding on their bicycles, queuing for jobs, and they're not there anymore. I want to tell you they are there, only that they are in China. Those queues are there, but they are in Chinese factories. Those queues are there, but they are in a place called you. They are in a place called Guangzhou. I'm not saying anybody close down, but I will keep saying again and again, for the sake of record and the sake of history, that this is not helpful to our country. Why now the American dollar is strengthening, we are crying about it, is because cumulatively they have said America first. And I'm saying Kenya first. So that was Moses Kura, the trade minister, telling Parliament for his rationale as to why people are upset over the importation of Chinese goods. Now that all sounds great, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people can sympathize with what he's saying, especially for traders who have to compete with the low-cost Chinese goods that are coming into markets. And by the way, this is not uniquely a Kenyan issue. This is the same thing that Donald Trump talks about in the United States. It's the same thing that people talk about in Europe as well. Matching the China price is really difficult for anybody all over the world. Now, a lot of people felt that his campaign, though, coming from him in particular, but leaders like him, is complete and total 
BS. He's nothing more than an opportunist who's using the China Square mall fiasco as a way for him and his cronies simply to profit. Don't believe what he's saying about how you can manufacture in Kenya because it's people like him, these are the critics, what they will say, who've gone out of their way to destroy manufacturing in Kenya, and you'll hear why. So let me play some sound here from someone who really got a lot of attention at this time. His name is Francis Gaito. He is a very popular political commentator on TikTok and Twitter, a Kenyan commentator, and a couple of his clips on the China Square mall protest went viral. I mean, they racked up huge audiences. Now, Francis points out that it's people like Curia specifically who've actually gone out of their way, as I mentioned, to destroy the country's manufacturing sector. Why? Because in a country like Kenya, importing stuff is where the money's made. Now, normally it would be a small number of importers who bought directly from the Chinese and then controlled the resale in places like Nairobi. But now that the Chinese, people like Cheng Lei, who started up the China Square Mall, are coming in directly and undercutting those merchants. Well, that's the kind of thing that's pissing off Curia and friends of Curia, and that, in their view, is the real problem. Let's listen to what Francis has to say. Listen, we are at a crossroads as a country. This China, China Square issue is creating a lot of discomfort because it is fighting against a major narrative. Number one, all the rich people, all the billionaires, I spoke about one the other day, they have derived their wealth, especially from the Mount Kenya region. They have derived their wealth from importation. So they go and to China and import. The, the, the churches, the people they glorify, the people they invite for their harambes, the people they, they call there to speak, eh? the people they, they then later also push into politics, the people who will, the people who pack all the influence in Mount Kenya region are importers. Mount Kenya region, the, the, the manufacturers were suppressed, everything, nobody speaks, but the importers have a lot of clout, they have a lot of say in the domestic politics, in the regional politics of the, of the area, and even in the national politics. They are, all, they are all importers, none of them does any value addition, none of them does any manufacturing, none of them is an innovator, inventor, none of them supports local enterprise. Today, if you want to supply one of the supermarkets, if you want to supply your, your farmer, you want to supply cabbages, they will not give you a chance. These are the same people who are importing fruits from Egypt. Moses Kuria was in Egypt the other day. You, th you think he went there to discuss about Kenya? He went there to discuss about his own personal businesses. So they are challenging. The Ch these China Square people are challenging a long-held narrative because now they are sourcing products from the original source there from the factories and whatever, and they are giving a better price because they are working on volumes and margins. Now, you, you are Nyamakema guy and whatever, you've been convinced that, hey, you've been convinced that this Chinese is your enemy because now Moses Kuria is veering to the trajectory of the South Africans. The South Africans always, anytime their politicians are unable to deliver the ANC thugs who are elected there, they always blame immigrants, they always blame Somalis, they blame these people that they are the ones who are causing the problems, but it's them who have stolen their money, they have stolen their opportunities, and then they come to blame other people. Okay, Kobus, I want to get your take there on South Africa and the ANC, but let's go back to Hanjen. Hanjen, now, Nye, he didn't get into any of these details, so that's the background of the China Square mall fiasco, and he did talk about it quite a bit, though, and he was really angry about it. Tell us what Nye was saying in his post. Okay, so in Nye's post, I think he take the China Mall as, you know, a case 
to prove his opinion about you know China always putting the in the lower you know, states or situations. So he's saying like the issue is remains far from resolved. So he's talking about the Kenyan traders are still initiate some lawsuits against the, the Chinese companies individuals regarding the you know importations. So he said it's very rare even for him as people you know who stay in Africa for 12 years. It's still the first time he has known like a direct civil litigation targeting Chinese individuals by the local communities. He also mentioned very interesting part about the African countries law system because it's somehow challenging for people like to prove or given the factors like to prove they are innocent or especially on those like business rated cases. Uh, the business performance or the declining of the profits for the local, you know, stakeholders, small traders, like the decline is really because of the Chinese importers or the other more complicated factors. He raised one point saying like he feels the Kenyans are still facing their own problems domestically. So this way of targeting Chinese is a way of shifting their domestic tensions, the tensions on Chinese people, but rather than solve the real problems in that Kenya. Yeah. Jero, let's go to you in the, the DRC and even in, in Mauritius where you are. A lot of what Francis was saying in his comments about how these leaders are looking out for themselves first and foremost, not for the people. And you got to be very suspicious of these leaders and their motivations and their intentions, because at the end of the day, they're going to focus on their pockets before anybody else. That must resonate a lot with you, given the nature of the leadership in the DRC. Yes, that resonates a lot with me, given the nature of the politics in DRC and how people do business day in DRC. That's right. I read the comment, I read Nye's comment, and I have to say that I was a bit puzzled in a way that the issue he's raising is really raising really valuable points. But also, I don't know how the legislation in Kenya, but I know in countries like DRC, for instance, there is a law forbidding foreigners to do retailing business. I mean, very small retailing business. I don't know what's the law in Kenya. So in that context, in a country like mine in DRC, for instance, we had those similar issue targeting Indian, Pakistanis, Lebanese, even Chinese at certain point in time because people were complaining, saying that there is a law forbidding foreigners, whatever kind of foreigners that might be, to do retailing business. But since in that, in that segment of the economy, you find a lot of imported goods coming from China, coming from different countries, and you find a lot of Chinese and Indians and Pakistanis and Lebanese in the case of DRC, you have the chance of having those tension coming a lot. But what is raising of course, when you have like corrupted politician that's also kind of playing the same in this in, in in the same kind of business, it kind of creates tension. But in a country like the DRC, you find the politician walking alongside with those importers who are Chinese and Lebanese to you know to do their business. So the context is quite different, but the framework and the consequences with the population are similar the same and the feeling that the population have toward the, the those uh, importers and those those foreigners working in the retail it's quite similar Jacobus, he talked about the anc and the corruption he called them thugs there's a lot of frustration in south africa with the government but at the same time this idea of targeting foreigners as a way to distract from your own 
domestic problems. That was something that Nia brought up, and it's something that, again, you've seen in Durban and other parts of South Africa where there's been surges of xenophobia, sometimes directed at the Chinese, but oftentimes at other Southern Africans. Let's get your take on this whole debate and also Nye's kind of point of view and this grievance that Nye also feels. And at the same time, I think that will come as a surprise to a lot of people in Africa that feel that, wait, the Chinese feel grievances when they seem like they're profiting and doing so well. And it's not that simple. Yes, absolutely. You know, I I think it's important to emphasize again that what's at issue here is not Kenyan manufacturing. There's no Kenyan manufacturing being undercut here. What's at issue is the protection of a cartel who's, who, who imports Chinese-made stuff and sells sells them at, the, at a profit to poor Kenyans. And you know, kind of what particular that what particular level of profit that's going to be happening at. You know, um, so 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 China's centrality as a manufacturer is is un, is unattacked in in this in this case you know we we're only talking about chinese goods and the pattern that we're seeing emerging is one that i think is is also in south africa where politicians are mostly fighting around who gets to be a gatekeeper and therefore who gets to profit from being the gatekeeper rather than any kind of like fostering of actual manufacturing or actual competition. And what then also happens, and I think this is very true in South Africa too, is that is that leaders in, I think, in, in Kenya and, and in other African countries are frequently completely indifferent to the fact that the people who are paying inflated prices are very very poor you know it's like the the people who are buying stuff from from these malls or buying chinese made stuff on the street they're not they're not luxury consumers you know and the fact that that it's possible for them to actually buy that stuff at half the price and for retailers to still make profit at that price point is completely you know, off the agenda. It's not. It's not. It's not being discussed at all. And I think this is true in South Africa too. Um, you know, kind of where, you know, a movement like the ANC, which came to power, uh, you know, with the narrative that they're there to empower poor people, are largely completely indifferent to, to the the suffering of poor people. You know, and 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 what becomes really kind of central to to the issue is is again this this kind of issue of extroversion. It's like it's who who gets to be a gatekeeper and who gets to control access in and out. Yeah, and you and I have a number of friends who've done research on China malls in South Africa. And one of the things that they found from that research was how people liked the air-conditioned environment. They liked the fact that everything was in one space. They didn't have to go to multiple markets across town. They liked the low prices. In many cases, there was no haggling, so it was a fixed price. And that was also, they felt, was more transparent in the pricing, that they got a better deal. So in this discussion, I think you bring up a really good point that we oftentimes, and in the West, there's a lot of sympathy to this idea, well, it's displacing African producers. But there's not as much conversation about the consumer who's benefiting, particularly consumers with minimal disposable income, their dollar or their kwacha or their shilling goes a lot farther with these China products. So there's winners and there's losers here. And Jenga, let's wrap up this conversation. You are in Kenya. You consume Chinese products, I presume, like everybody else does all around the world. When you were watching the China Square Mall you know, incident kind of play out, what was your take on it all? For Korea and his ilk, it's for political expediency. And before the China Mall, there were the Chinese supermarkets in upmarket uh, Nairobi areas. So going to the China more complaining about the affordability of the products that they are offering is just hypocrisy. And we know that for political mileage, he has to do something. Interestingly, 
his target audience, the people who he claims to be protecting in uh, Nyamakema and Kirinyagaro, just like uh, from the report uh, by KBC, those are from Mount Kenya region where Kuria is from. I am from the Mount Kenya region. I would be called that politically here. Gaido, who just spoke about, you know, his uh, discomfort with Kuria's, uh, you know, approach, is also from Mount Kenya region. And so I think that... Uh, at the end of it all, it's for him to survive longer in politics than he would have been. Yeah, so that is what it is. It, there is no interest for the common man in this case. It is just for him to push his agenda. And like uh, Kobaza stated, like Yor has uh, stated, um, the, ex- the importers of these products from China, they are doing business. It is big business. They are cartels and they don't want anybody else getting into that kind of privileged club. And so for Korea, he would have to protect his at all costs. And this cost at this time was the Chinese. If the Chinese were not there at this time to blame, there'd be somebody else. And so it would become a cycle if this succeeded. Yeah, but at the end of the day, William Ruto does have some accountability here. He came to power saying he was a hustler. And in that case, that you know, a hustler in this case is a is an endearing word of somebody who's worked their way up from the bottom. Yep. And he said he was going to protect and look after the other hustlers and the and the working people. And yet here we have, you know, someone in his cabinet who clearly isn't doing that. And I don't know. I mean, it just, and he also said, remember that he was going to you know uh, push out the Chinese who were there illegally, and he didn't do that either. By the way. Interestingly, um, his deputy, Rigathi Gashagwa, sometime last year before the election, he was in one of the media outlets here, owned by Kenyatta at the time. And he said that the Chinese were, you know, monopolizing trade in terms of imports and all the things that they were bringing in. So I think it is, it seems like from those conversations, it is a narrative that has been going on in those political circles. And so they had, you know, to raise emotions and create, you know, this kind of picture of the Chinese for the people they portend or pretend to be protecting so that they have a narrative of, you see, we care for you. This is what we have done or what we are doing. And so they can remain dear to these uh, hustlers, uh, which interestingly is not bearing fruit because they're the reality on the ground now is very different from what was before they came into power. Well, let's shift gears now into the mining sector. Giro, I'm going to ask you quickly to give us a little bit of background before we get to Njenga and his story. One of the things that we've been hearing about in countries like the DRC, Zambia, and Zimbabwe in particular, is this desire to move up the production chain in the industrial supply chain, whether that's in mining and to refine and process minerals, or in the case of actually building steel industries as they're trying to do in in Zimbabwe. The problem is, though, is that power is a chronic problem throughout Southern Africa, nowhere more than in South Africa, where Cobus is and ESCOM with your six, eight, nine, ten hours a day of brownouts. So, Giro, let's talk about power very quickly. Just give us the lay of the land as you see it in Southern Africa in terms of electricity that's needed to fuel these refining and these industrial supply chains. 
Yes, electricity has been a very major issue for many industrial, uh, for many mining industries in Southern Africa. Last year, in case of Zimbabwe, last year when Emerson Nangagwa, president of Zimbabwe, said that you know he wants the lithium company to start processing lithium on the ground, one of the Chinese company, Zhejiang Huayou, kind of protested by saying, "We would like to do that, but there is a huge infrastructure problem here in Zimbabwe about electricity." It's the same concern that another still another Chinese mining company, this one is still a maker, Tsingshan Corporation, had raised at our time expressing the fact that there is a huge problem in terms of electricity. And you see the same situation happening in different countries, like in the DRC, for instance, where the Sikomin project had to build its own dam, the Busanga Dam, to be able to power its mining project in the southern DRC. We see also the similar problem in countries like Zambia, and we also see that in Namibia, Namibia, where we see Chinese company Triangle also to supply with the solar, um, solar powers and everything just to power those mining industries. So the problem is huge for Southern Africa because you have now a lot of mining industry popping up everywhere, Zimbabwe, Zambia, DRC, that require a lot of electricity inputs, but the demand is huge, but what the market can offer just so low that now the, the question is how they're going to, to solve that issue on the ground now. Okay, well, how they're going to do it, we have an indication of at least how Qingshan Holdings, which is the huge mega steel company, I think it's one of the largest, if not the largest steel manufacturing companies in the world. They have a very big operation in Zimbabwe. And Jenga, you were following that this week. What is Qingshan's solution to their power problem in Zimbabwe? So Xinjiang is looking northeast to Mozambique and they are planning on importing power from the Mfandan Kua hydroelectric power project once it is complete. Interestingly, for this project to be complete, the government is looking for a strategic partner and so for now, the timelines are still out there yet to be completed. Now, Zimbabwe is following this plan through and it is supporting DISCO, as it is commonly known, to push for the exclusive importing power uh, arrangement. And this uh, project is a $1.5 billion steel and ferrochrome facility. The power from um, uh, Tumvuma, from um, Fandankua, will travel 530 kilometers. And uh, coming from Tete province, uh, which also is closer to South Africa than any other country in the region, you would see that there is a bit of competition because South Africa is also suffering from the same challenges like Zimbabwe is, and it is interested in this power. So I don't know how this is going to play out, yet DISCO is counting on, the, in, on, on this power coming from Mozambique and helping them continue with the 5 uh, million tons a year steel operation. Now, the company or the project itself is 60% complete, and so they're just waiting for this special arrangement to come out. And the biggest challenge for now is the power from the project in Mozambique is not yet out. So there's still some questions about what happens in case this doesn't pan out as they expect. Now, an official from the government who's been quoted by the Zimbabwe Independent uh, regarding this power uh, says that for now, <clears throat> Zimbabwe is planning an exclusive power line that will help this company be able to produce and continue with operations. But then again, with Zesa Holdings pushing for this exclusivity from Mozambique, maybe it's going to work out, maybe it's not going to. 
we just have to wait and see. Kobus, listening to this, I can feel my blood pressure kind of going up. Because last week, we talked with Christopher Nettobill. And one of the things that we brought up in our discussion with Christophe, he is at the Green Belt and Road Finance Institute at Fudan University. And we talked about how China in 2023 has added or approved 20 gigawatts of new coal power. When Donald Trump appeared this week on the CNN town hall and somebody said, what are you going to do if you're reelected as president to lower energy prices? His answer was drill, baby, drill. That's a quote. And it doesn't seem like Japan, Germany, the United States, any of the global north countries are hesitating at all to fire up the coal power plants. But yet they will deprive countries like Zimbabwe of the $3 billion in financing needed to build the Senghua power plant, which would have an enormous impact on a country like Zimbabwe to be able to power industry and people because it isn't part of the just transition. So we've talked about the risk premium that African countries are facing in securing finance. And in some ways, it also feels like there's a climate premium as well, that they're getting shafted while everybody else fires up their coal joints. These guys are being told, no, 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 you can't have coal because it's bad for the environment, right? It just feels a little bit weird to me that coal is bad for Zimbabwe, but it's okay for West Virginia. Well, the thing is, to be blunt, West Virginia is wrong. The, it may be wrong, but it's going ahead anyway and doing it. I mean, we're not talking about right or wrong here, right? I mean wrong in terms of five years down the line, ten years down the line, they're going to be sitting with a whole bunch of stranded assets, which they they are probably able to absorb, which is why obviously it's a kind of a might makes right situation. But that doesn't change the fact that coal investment is just <laughs> it's just a dumb thing to do right now. What makes me upset, I think where my blood pressure rises, is the question of whether African, like I agree, that like African countries should have more leeway to use these, these resources, including, for example, natural gas, than the global north does, right? And that is, you know, kind of, I, I think really Japan, the US, Europe, they suck in relation to this. It's really shocking, I think, completely outrageous that, you know, the countries that preach as much to the world about green transition should be kept to their own standards and the fact that they've done nothing over the last 20 years to actually to affect their own green transition is an outrageous failure that said I think a lot more hard-nosed questions should be asked about why poor countries with huge numbers of sunny days per year, like South Africa and Zimbabwe, are not using that resource, and why they are hell-bent on using this ancient technology when they could be leapfrogging into something much more efficient that will also not destroy their own countries. Is that a rhetorical question or is that a real question? I mean, be- No, that's a real question. Well, the real like, question why- is that the... Well, because your president doesn't want to throw 100,000 people in the South African coal industry out of work the same way that Senator Manchin wants to protect the jobs in West Virginia. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, if if that were the real reason in South Africa, then it would be a fantastic situation. The real reason in South Africa is that is that they are themselves at the head of cartels 
that are so embedded not only with actual economic cartels, but also with criminal cartels that control these industries, that that is why they're so beholden to them. You know, so if South African politicians thought for 10 minutes a year about those coal miners, then I'd be happy. Okay. The reality is they don't. The reality is that these systems are set up to benefit them, and they're, again, indifferent to, to the actual outcomes on the ground. It seems to be a little bit of similarity between what we heard in Kenya and the cartels there and what you're talking about in South Africa as well. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. okay. Uh, Njenga, thank you very much for that. Hanjen, thank you as well. Njenga, tell me, what other stories are you working on uh, that people can expect in the next couple of weeks on China Global South? So there is uh, Kenya, the first Chinese-funded project in Kenya, a geothermal project. This sector has been dominated by the Japanese. There has been a number of American companies, but now with Chinese funding and one of the engineers at the GDC or the Geothermal uh, Development Company saying that it's easier to get funding from the Chinese, there isn't as much bureaucracy, then probably we are going to see more of this. I'll be following up on this. Also, I'll be looking at um, the renewable energy sector and the EV sector in Kenya, uh, working with the Kenya Renewable Energy Association. I'll be following that as well, as well as um, a research uh, center in Kenya, the Jomo Kenyatta University, where the Chinese have an institution that has been put up for research in terms of agriculture, climate change, diversity, biodiversity protection, and all those things. So those ones are some of the stories that I'll be looking at from Kenya, as well as others that are coming and happening around Africa. Okay. And Hanjen, what are some of the other stories that you're going to be working on for our subscribers in the newsletter and also just in general, even on the podcast? Yes. So I will be, you know, mainly focused on the content that's only published in Chinese, uh, in some special platforms, but training in the Chinese communities like WeChat. So there's a lot of stories that happening, not only in the government, like country level government, but also governments and uh, companies from different provinces from China. And they have been very actively participate into the engagement with African stakeholders and other global South stakeholders. So I will try to grab more like updates from those more specific new uh, stakeholders that our audience might not be familiar with before. Um, to share some uh, new stories. Um, meanwhile, I will also focus on some opinions that published by the Chinese scholars. Uh, they're commenting on China's engagement with the global South. So all of the emerging markets or the news that being globally watched, like how the Chinese scholars or Chinese like officials, their opinions about to add some new voices from our site. Fantastic. So again, you're seeing a lot in the great translation movement, which a lot of folks in US and Europe and, and even in the Middle East are translating a lot of Chinese academic work. Very little of it, though, is focused on Africa and the global south. And that's the work that Hanjin is doing. Also, Njenga is covering it from the climate space. Thank you both for that. Kobus and Giro, very quickly before we go, a couple stories that I just want to run down from this week as well. Very interesting statistic that came out of the Kenyan Treasury that I'd like to get your take on. In the coming fiscal year, the amount of Chinese loans will be a total of $12.5 million. Now, that is quite remarkable. And when you think back to 2017, that number was $522 million, half a billion. In five years, it's gone from half a billion 
to 12.5 million. Also, Kobus, you wrote this week in your coverage of the debt issues, Zambia and Sudan both not doing well. Zambia in particular, Zambia apparently now is going to the French and begging for the French to try and help them to get their debt restructuring process going. The French have no leverage over the Chinese. We are stuck. It is not moving forward. All the rumors of some kind of breakthrough that happened at the IMF World Bank Spring meetings back in March, complete garbage. That didn't happen. There is no breakthrough. We've not heard anything official. So, Kobus, let's get your take right now on the drop-off in financing for a country like Kenya and also the stalemate over Chinese debt in Zambia and the situation in Sudan. So in relation to Zambia, France and China are the co-chairs of the the creditor committee. So I think that's probably the reason why they were kind of appealing to the French during a, an official conversation between uh, President Michelema and Emmanuel Macron. So, you know, kind of the fall off in lending to Kenya is obviously fits into a larger pattern of a, a very steep drop in, in Chinese financing generally. I was surprised that, that even that amount of lending was actually happening still, you know, to Kenya, particularly because Kenya really is on the verge of, of full-on debt distress. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of marker. We'll have to see how it develops in a, over a slightly longer time frame. But I think one of the bigger issues is that East Africa as a whole is, you know, is, is potentially facing a, a, a larger security issue in relation to Sudan. Um, and China is facing very, very significant challenges in Sudan. Um, so uh, Financial Times was reporting this week that um, that at least $5 billion worth of, of loans, outstanding loans um, from China to Sudan might be in danger because of the, the current civil war there. But it might actually be a lot more because they were not counting prepayment loans for, for oil buys, which is essentially a version of, of a resource-backed loan. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a loan that gets repaid in oil, at least two and a half billion dollars worth of, of those loans are at play and it may be well a, a lot more. Also a weird little data point that we picked up is that the Chinese company Norinco announced that they are building an oil pipeline in South Sudan, like $1.2 billion project. But so far, we're not sure who's financing it, what the situation is, like who in their right mind would invest and build, a, you know, kind of in South Sudan and the Sudan, larger Sudan region right now. Not sure. But, you know, kind of all of that is at play. What makes that story weird is you said Norinco, right? Yes. Okay, Norinco, if those of you are not familiar, is not an oil company. It's not a natural gas company. Norinco is one of China's largest state-run weapons manufacturers, arms manufacturers. So I don't even want to think about what the deal is on that. I mean, that is insidious if that's the case. I think it's a subsidiary of Norinco that I think is it is, works in construction, but I have no idea like even who they are. Like I couldn't find much detail about them. Oh, that's right. No, and that, that does ring a bell because there was a big Iraq deal that fell through on a gas pipeline that it was a subsidiary of Norinco as well. So Norinco's got obviously tentacles in lots of different places, but just beware that Norinco is a massive arms manufacturer and arms dealer and a big one in Africa too. So just something to think about there. Very interesting statistic that also came out this week on the debt side. And Joe, I'll get to you in a quick second, which was uh, this came out of Brad Setzer, who is the uh, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and really one of the smartest guys on international debt finance out there. And he pointed out that 
It's very likely right now in 2023 that more money is actually going from African countries to China to repay loans than money coming from China into Africa. And that's totally counterintuitive. But he noted that most Chinese loan contracts have a five or seven year grace period in the repayment terms. And the peak of Chinese lending was 2016, 2017. So the bulk of these Chinese loans that were made at that peak in 2016 are now in their repayment periods. So just consider the fact that we're now probably seeing more money leave Africa to China as part of loan repayments than the other way around. Not something we've seen in a very long time. Jiro, go ahead. Yes, that's really very interesting information. I think it's an information that might play in the back of the mind of William Ruto. I remember the comment that we had last week when you're talking about this China-Africa summit. Now, say since, and we were saying that now that money is not coming from China to Africa, many in Africa might start to consider that, yes, maybe we might need to change the term and the style of the FOCAC meeting we're going to have with China. But this is another debate. But talking about this debt issue, I just, I'm really thinking about Zambia because I remember a few weeks, few weeks ago i've made a video about zambia situation i was like quite angry about how things were going so far zambia is pushing on friends trying to to talk to to convince china to do something my question is why not zambia is trying to talk to china directly why not zambia is doing to you know kind of to call out to call out china on that they've been trying to but they won't call out china directly because i think they're terrified exactly because here's the thing do you remember that ft story the financial times story from a couple weeks ago or it was maybe a couple of months ago where it was saying that they actually did call out the Chinese and like within 24 hours, the reporter had to retract it. And I believe with my soul that the Chinese embassy picked up the phone and said, what the F are you doing? We're going to come down there and we're going to mess you up. And, bah, 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 bah. and then they hung up the phone. And then the finance minister had to call the FT guy and said, uh, I need to retract that. <laughs> yes, that's why they're not doing it. Because I think they get bullied by the Chinese in the, uh, and they say, don't, don't, don't embarrass us publicly or you won't get anything else in the future. That's what I think. And this is, for me, this is really problematic in that regard. It's very problematic because at some point, even the Western capitals, Paris, Brussels, London, all of them are watching them and say, guys, at some point, you're going to have to talk to your main bilateral lenders. You're going to have to talk to China and say, guys, can you do something? If they don't call out China at some point, if they don't get the courage, the guts to say, you know, China, we need to talk. You need to do something. People will, won't have that much of, you know, action or leverage to do anything because I understand their position. I understand that they don't want to get caught in the middle of like, if they call out China, they're going to be like, you know, pushing American agenda against China. They're going to be pushing the IMF and the, all this anti-China narrative. But beyond that, they have to look for themselves. How do we move forward? Because without calling out China directly, they might find themselves in a very difficult position. And the question will be, why France would try to help Zambia in that situation? Why France would try even? That's the question. They have no leverage. What leverage does France have with China on these issues? Nothing. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a sign of desperation from Hishilema that he's doing it because he's got no other choice. Very quickly before we go, because we are running out of time, this very question, Jiho, was brought to Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning this week and saying, what's going on with Sri Lanka and Zambia? So Sri Lanka just for those of you who follow some of these debt issues elsewhere, they had their first creditor committee meeting. And remember that China is the largest bilateral creditor in Sri Lanka, just as it is in Zambia. And the Chinese did not take part in that meeting. They were there only as an observer. And that really kind of stuck people with a little bit of a, 
what's going on here? And, you know, and again, they're just wondering, what's the Chinese motive? What's their plan here? What's the agenda? No one seems to really have an idea. So this issue was brought up to Mao Ning at the press briefing in Beijing. And lo and behold, guess what? She didn't talk about Sri Lanka. She didn't talk about Zambia. She said it's all America's fault. And so let me read you the quotes. And Kobus, I want to get your take on this. She said, We have noted that the U.S. benefits from its dollar hegemony on the one hand and jabs fingers at African countries' normal financing cooperation on the other. This is nothing but double standards. In fact, the massive interest rate hikes by the U.S. has pushed up the cost of financing and debt repayment facing African countries. This is the main cause of African countries' debt issue. Kobus, as far as I can tell, and I did a search through the Chinese foreign ministry transcripts. This is the first time that we have heard the use of the words dollar hegemony from the foreign ministry. And they seem to be picking up on this trend. And this is part of the evolving narrative for the Chinese response to the debt crises and their role in it in Africa. And again, we've seen this evolution over the past 12 months in terms of their rhetoric and their messaging. But this reference to dollar hegemony is very, very interesting because it does show a change in their messaging strategy. Yeah, it does. And it seems to be kind of dovetailing with messaging coming from other global South countries too. So of course, Russia, for, for its own insane reasons, pushing against against uh, dollar transactions. But we're also seeing very similar kind of, uh, you know, sentiments coming out of Brazil, out of several other kind of global South countries, where everyone is, is attacking the dollar. You know, so, so that's a very convenient talking point. But it doesn't change the, the reality that China is a major creditor to these two countries and that China has been stonewalling these, this process for a long time. There's a vibe at the moment among many politicians, and South Africa is, a, is a really a leader in this, but, but it's, it's really across the board, of this kind of a mixture of kind of dissembling and nihilism, you know? It's like where, where no one has any suggestions, no one has any real plans to make anything better. They all, no one believes what they're saying themselves, but here we are saying it anyway. And that, that was very much that kind of vibe I, I got from Mao Ning, but like one, one is getting it from many other people too. It's just scoring points on the other side. That seems to be what they want to do. I wrote a pretty stinging criticism of that this week as well with regards to the United States saying that it's going to build a massive railway from India to the Middle East. And you're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're just trying to score points against the Chinese. And Mao Ning's trying to do the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing with the Global Gateway. It's the same thing with many, many Chinese initiatives where you're like, what? What? What are you talking about? That's a, Yeah, but they're all just spitting at each other. But all of them, though. I mean, listen, they've all got dirt on their hands. I mean, they're all the same. And meantime, Zambia is circling the toilet bowl. And that's, that's the part that is... And, and again, when the Chinese say, you know, we don't have... It's not our fault... Yeah, you got to you got to talk. You know, the fact that they they sat out this Sri Lanka creditor committee meeting affected sentiment on the market which then pushed the value of the currency down, which then makes their cost of borrowing going up. All of that instability and uncertainty does not help developing countries on the edge. China has an obligation, a moral obligation to be more transparent and forthcoming with what its agenda is so that the rest of the world can understand what do we do? They're not doing that. So I think they need to be held accountable for for that. Okay, very quickly, before we go, Giraud, what are some of the stories that you'll be working on next week on Projet Afrique Chine for our listeners who speak French? What are some of the issues that you'll be covering? 
On, I'll be, I'll be continuing covering different stories. Uh, there is one that's one story about uh, how uh, China is moving forward in uh, Namibia with the lithium project with the Australian companies there. I think last week I wrote a piece about the interesting dynamic between Chinese and Australian companies in the lithium industry in Africa, especially in Namibia. This is one of the stories I'm going to be following really closely to see what's happened. And I also covered another story yesterday about human trafficking down in Malawi involving three Chinese who were arrested in Lilongwe airport because they were trying to traffic two women from Malawi to China. Those are the kind of stories I'm going to be following on the Project Afrique Chine and other different stories because those stories are kind of, we follow them on the day-to-day basis and uh, we pick them as, as long as they come, as, as long as they go. So stay connected into projectafriquechine.com and you're going to be really updated about every stories that we cover in French about China and Africa. Kobus, can you believe that we're here now with this great team doing this amazing work? And we're doing it in Arabic as well. We're going to have Johnny Essa, our new Arabic editor, join us on the show. We've got a new ASEAN editor, Antonia Timmerman, who's based in Jakarta. She's going to be joining us on the show. And it's just so exciting. This is amazing work that this team is doing. If you want to support the work that we're doing, the best way you can do it is to subscribe to the China Global South Project. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. There are 50% discounts for students and teachers, but you're supporting independent journalism. You're supporting this great team that's doing this amazing work, and we really value it. But if you want high-quality, independent, nonpartisan journalism, it requires people to support it. And so that's why we're really just genuinely asking you just to support it. If you don't want to subscribe, but you do want to support the work we're doing, go to our Patreon page that Giro manages with a great community of Patreon supporters. You can find us at patreon.com slash China Africa Project. So we'll leave the conversation there. This team will be back next week in some form or another. So for Hanjan in East Africa, for Njenga in Kenya, for Giro in Mauritius and Kobus in South Africa, I have to remember where everybody is, guys. It's a long list. I want to thank you all for joining us today. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at China GS Project. And visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>